Welcome to Where Do You Exist, a storytelling podcast in collaboration with HBO and their new television series, Here and Now. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Here and Now, from Oscar and Emmy Award winner Alan Ball, stars Tim Robbins and Holly Hunter and can be watched only on HBO. The new series is a provocative and darkly comic meditation on the disparate forces polarizing present-day American culture as experienced by the members of a progressive multi-ethnic family and a contemporary Muslim family headed by a psychiatrist who is treating one of their children. And what you're listening to right now is the fifth episode of Where Do You Exist, a six-part podcast miniseries recorded in front of live audiences in Portland, Oregon, L.A., and New York City. Leaning into the themes of Here and Now, a diverse collection of local trendsetters share their most intimate true tales of family, identity, love, belonging, and finding one's way in the world. Today, you'll hear three stories from New York City. Enjoy. Our next speaker is the uh, former editor of Vibe and Essence magazines. He's a founder of Native Sun, a movement created to inspire and empower black gay men. Everyone, please welcome Emil Wilbeacon. So, my parents were not normal. My parents were not ordinary parents. My parents were actually extraordinary. Um, Let me tell you about them. My father, Harvey Earl Wilbegin, was from St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And he was the youngest of 13. He went to Hampton University. And then when he moved to New York, he studied architectural engineering at Pratt. While he was there, he met my mother, Cleota P. Wilbegin. And that is really her name. It's an old-timey black name. Um, But Cleota, my mom, uh, was from Des Moines, Iowa, and her joke was, yes, there are black people in Des Moines, Iowa. So she came to New York with her master's in music, but Cleota was extraordinary. Cleota was a tennis player in high school, so I have this great photo of my mom with all these white women in their tennis whites, and in my fierce mother and her tennis whites. Then she was a child prodigy with piano. So she graduated early from high school at 16. She went to Drake University. She got her undergraduate degree, and then she got her master's in music. She came to New York to go to Barnard Teachers College. So the story goes that their mutual friends introduced them. They went on a blind date, and two weeks later, they were engaged to be married. That didn't rub up on me, but (laughs) that is the beautiful story. So they got married, they lived in New York, they lived in Bed-Stuy, and then they decided to move to Cincinnati, Ohio. They decided to move away because they wanted to have a better life for their kids, and they wanted to create a family and just have a better lifestyle. So they moved to Cincinnati, my father got a great job with the city, and in that first year, they built a house that my father designed, They bought a Cadillac, so if you're black, you know we made it. (laughs) So, being the overachieving parents that they are, clearly, my mother um, decides that she's gonna go to law school because she needs another degree. So while she is at law school, she's pregnant with my brother, Eric. 
So let's just put this in context for everybody. My mother was pregnant in law school in the early 60s. Okay, talk about black girl magic. This is pre-civil rights movement, pre-women's movement. So you see what my mother is already. I failed to mention that my mother was fabulous. My mother was often known to wear a fabulous Givenchy dress. She came to school to speak one time in a red Halston ultra suede wrap dress with a mink coat and big sunglasses. And then we can talk about the wigs offline. <laughs> so they have Eric, they have this beautiful house, they live in Cincinnati and everything is perfect. And then they want to have more kids. Unfortunately, my mother started having miscarriages. So on about the third miscarriage, the doctors were like, you have to stop. So they decided that they would adopt. So they did a search. My mother was very clear being the fierce diva that she was, that she did not want daughters. She only wanted boys, because she was like, I, I would mess up a girl. So, but she didn't know what she was about to get. So, the best of both worlds. <laughs> so, they did a search, and finally they got a call. They, climbed in the Cadillac, they drove to Cleveland, Ohio. Now again, context. This is in, during the race riots in the civil rights movement, it's 1968. They drive to Cleveland, the police are derailing them, they have to do all these other routes. They go to this adoption agency, and guess who they found? <laughs> Me. They walk in, and there I am. I'm sitting there, arms up open to them, big dimples, big brown eyes, big curly hair, and I'm like, take me out of here. <laughs> so they do. They take me back to Cincinnati, and everything is great. I am the golden child, as my brother likes to refer to me. Everyone's doting over me, they love me. It's like this dream come true for my family. So I'm like, okay, this is all lovely, until one day, they shattered my whole reality. My parents called a meeting in their bedroom. Now you know a meeting in your parents' bedroom ain't good. So I'm like, okay, what's going on? I'm six years old now, and I remember this like it was yesterday. I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, what's going on? So I think I'm in trouble. And at this point, my father was inspired by my mother, so he decides to go to law school. So now they're both lawyers. So they basically presented this like a case, like a brief, that they were going to prove to me without a shadow of a doubt that they loved me unconditionally. So they started off by telling me that I was adopted. Six years old, I'm like, what's that? So they go and explain to me that I was not their natural son, but I was still their son. And I started crying hysterically because I was like, what is going on right now? I'm six years old, like, why are we even doing this? And they, being lawyers, were like, no, so what are your questions? And I'm like, so we don't have the same blood? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, is that why I don't wear glasses? Because I didn't then, but now that I'm old, I do. But back then, you know, my mother, my brother, and my father all wore glasses, so I would get sunglasses and pop the lenses out. Because I was like, why don't I wear glasses? It's the weirdest thing. So I asked all my questions, and then they went back into legal mode. So 
Here are the details. Your parents gave you up for adoption because they couldn't take care of you. Your one parent, and no details because my files are closed, one parent is black, the other is white. So of Hungarian descent, very good health records, so you're not going to have any health problems, and they're very good at math. And they wanted me to know that no matter what, they loved me unconditionally. So I received that, and I just was like blubbering, crying. I just was like, what is this? Like, I don't even know what this is. So go to sleep. Then I thought about it. In hindsight, how brave and audacious was it that my parents would actually share this truth with me and that transparency at such a young age? It's a little crazy, but they were other, and they recognized that I was other. They were protecting me. They were shielding me from all the things that would happen to me. So I realized the next day at school that this is a defining moment in my life. This is when resilience would become something that I would walk with and carry with me for the rest of my life. So, being the precocious kid that I am, the kid that stayed up late watching Carol Burnett to see the Bob Mackie gowns, the one who loved Harper's Bazaar magazine and Interview magazine and all these things that were beautiful and shiny, I go to school and I'm like, I'm black, let's go. So here's the tea. I am adopted, I am special, because that's what my parents told me, that I am special and that I was chosen and that I was loved. So I made it a thing. All the kids at school were like, well, okay, what's adopted? Like, no one got it. But I was like, I got it. And I think about my parents, right? Like, you know, here they are. They had pushed all these boundaries. They had broken glass ceilings. They had pushed through racial stereotypes and were making history as black people who were strivers and who were making a difference and were about excellence. They were about religion. They were about their values. And they wanted to protect their son, who they knew was fragile, who they knew needed extra care, who they knew as a black boy in America would need to be protected from everything that would happen. So when I think about it, I thank God for my parents. I thank God for my birth parents, because as my parents would tell me, my birth parents gave me up because they wanted me to have a better life. So I thank them because they gave me an extraordinary life. Thank you. Our next speaker coming to the stage, I saw her last night, she's so funny. Uh, she's a New York-based comedian. Uh, she's appeared at the Brooklyn Comedy Festival. Everyone, please give her a big New York welcome to Eudora Peterson, everybody. So tonight I'm going to talk about childhood, my childhood. And um, I guess to preface, I grew up in the suburbs in an overwhelmingly white and affluent neighborhood, and I was neither of those things. I'm not overwhelmingly white <laughs> or affluent. And when you grow up in a place that's just devoid of people who look like you, and if you're surrounded by people who just are so much wealthier than you, it can start to like warp your sense of worth. 
And for me, one of the earliest experiences I had with feeling unworthy was with beauty. And I have a lot of just like distinct memories of just staring, like looking at myself in the mirror and just thinking everything was just fundamentally like wrong about me. Like it was just beyond the fact that like I couldn't afford to wear the kinds of clothes or makeup that my peers could wear, but it was just that like my skin was too dark and my hair was like never shiny or smooth and my nose was really wide and my body looked like a breadstick. Um, And I was like only 11 years old and I was just constantly exhausted and defeated by those feelings all the time. And it's really depressing. Like, I've never actually talked about that, but it's just very sad because when you're that young, when you're 11, you can't reasonably alter or change those things about you. But this is kind of funny. As hopeless as I felt about all of those things, I did know that at age 11, puberty was on the horizon. You know? It was around the bend. Like, it could happen in a week, any moment. I was like, okay, could happen. And that meant, you know, I could get boobs. <laughs> there was this possibility that, like, at any given moment, I could just grow my own fabulous, gorgeous, beautiful boobs. <laughs> so tonight, I'd like to read a letter in the voice of my 11-year-old self that I wrote to God about that possibility. And it's called, Dear God, I need big boobs fast, naturally, and without surgery in a week. (laughs) Dear God, sorry for the short notice, but I need big boobs fast, naturally, and without surgery in a week. On the last day of school, before summer vacation, I made a promise to myself that next school year, I would no longer have small boobs. However, I also made that promise out loud in front of the entire student body. It's how I won the school election for class treasurer and I can't go back on my word. (laughs) Anyway, unfortunately the new school year is almost here, God, and when the bell rings for first period and I walk through those school gymnasium doors, people are gonna expect to see my big boobs enter first and then the rest of my body enter second. And when it's lunchtime in the cafeteria, people are going to expect me to use my big boobs to convince the lunch ladies to show us their big boobs. (laughs) It's a long story, God, but everyone's been dying to see the lunch ladies' big boobs, and I promise I can make that happen if I were a class treasurer. (laughs) Politics aside, getting big boobs fast, naturally, and without surgery in a week could also improve the quality of my relationships. Like, for example, I have pretty loyal friends, but they would be even more loyal if I had big boobs. (laughs) Right now, everyone in my friend circle is the most loyal to Big Booty Cheyenne. (laughs) Now, God, don't think that getting these big boobs fast, naturally, and without surgery in a week is just about other people. It's also about me and what I want. I have lots of personal reasons why I need big boobs. Here are 10. One, I have been a fan of big boobs all my life. Two, big boobs would make me more confident, and when I'm confident, I succeed. Three, I would be able to push them together. Four, 
if I were in a police lineup, I wouldn't have to worry about the eyewitness identifying me, even if I did commit the crime, because why would someone with big boobs break the law? <laughs> Five, if I die, my ghost will also have big boobs. <laughs> Six, I wouldn't have to go to school dances with my two best friends, Jessica and Rachel, anymore. Instead, I could go with my two big boobs. Seven, I could use my big boobs to hold things like extra bras for people with smaller boobs. Eight, if I jump through a window or crash through a wall, my silhouette will look sexy. Nine, I could wear those my eyes are up here shirts and finally get rid of my boobs are down there hats. Ten, my nipples are too large to not have big boobs. <laughs> so those are the reasons I need big boobs, but you're still probably wondering why I need them so fast. Well, it's because school starts on Monday the 12th, and today is Monday the 5th, and well, you do the math. Also, making big things happen in a week is kind of your thing, God. I don't care how you space it out. You could gradually make them bigger so I don't even notice, or you could give me the big boobs on Tuesday and just let me get used to them. You can even take Sunday off if you want to, but by Monday, I'm gonna need those big boobs. You're also probably wondering why I need them naturally without surgery. The truth is I have plenty of money for surgery. I sell knives on Etsy, and the knife business is always booming. No, the issue is no doctor is willing to perform cosmetic surgery on a minor, even if you brandish a knife in their face. Also, I would rather spend my money on more knives. You have to spend knife money if you want to make knife money. God, I know I am hoping and wishing for a lot. And I also know that people say you should be careful what you wish for, but that's why I'm praying to you, a God, uh, instead of wishing to a psychologist. But just to be safe, I have a few special requests. The first one is, please don't give me more than two big boobs. In fact, only give me two big boobs. Any more or less than that will have people asking questions I cannot answer. The second is, please make them brown. <laughs> Big white boobs are fine for some people, but those people are generally white and British. The third is that sometimes my dog, Max, sleeps in my bed and hangs out in my room. Please do not give the big boobs to him by mistake. <laughs> and lastly, God, put them on my chest, please. <laughs> anyway, I'll touch base with you next week. Love, Eudora. Your next speaker uh, is a former <laughs> newspaper reporter who became a podcast producer and worked on This American Life for nearly 10 years. Everyone, please welcome Lisa Pollack. When it became undeniably clear that despite years of fertility treatment, my future children would not be coming out of my body, my husband and I signed up with an adoption agency. The agency we chose specialized in open adoption. This meant our baby's birth mother would choose us to raise her child. But before a birth mother could choose us, she'd need to know that we existed, which is why our agency required each couple to create an adoption profile. 
Imagine the most comprehensive dating profile ever, a brochure of your entire life with photos not just of you, but also your home and friends and family. The adoption profile had to explain who we were, why we wanted to adopt, and what we'd be like as parents, which made it sort of like a resume for a job we had no experience doing, but were desperate to get. My husband and I had worked for years as professional journalists, but I don't think we ever sweated in an assignment as much as this one. We parsed every sentence for unintended meanings. Did the line about how we loved our jobs make us seem fulfilled and stable? Or like self-absorbed workaholics who'd come late to school plays and forget to pack lunch? The agency gave us a list of do's and don'ts. No wedding pictures, no photos of people drinking, no self-pitying references to your miscarriages. Get pictures of yourself playing with your friend's children. And whatever you do, include as many shots as possible of your adorable, kid-friendly dog. We didn't have a dog. We worked on the profile for weeks, writing, rewriting, swapping out photos. I pushed my three-year-old niece on a swing until my arms were sore so a friend could get the perfect shot of us having a good time together. I did not, like one aspiring parent I know, run around New York City with several changes of clothing to shoot a whole year's worth of photo ops in one afternoon. But I understood the impulse. For all of our agonizing, when our 12-page adoption profile came back from the printer, we felt hopeful. We shipped the booklets off to the agency and created a digital version for the waiting parent section of the agency's website. We were finally and officially on the market. And now it was time to wait. So we waited and waited. Weeks passed, then a month, a year, a year and a half. To cope with the stress, my husband and I joined a support group for couples waiting to adopt. It helped until the support group broke up for the entirely logical reason that all the couples, except me and my husband, had gotten babies. So we joined another support group. And this time, when everyone got a baby but us, the group stayed together. It was only when one family got a second child did we call it quits. At this point, we'd been on the agency's active list for two years. The staff tried to reassure us. There was this phrase they used when they sensed we were losing hope. Don't worry, they'd say, your baby will find you. I like this idea, your baby will find you. Like the waiting was part of a plan and the things that went wrong were just the price you paid to get the right baby. So we kept waiting. Every day I'd get to work, go to the agency's website and do the one thing we'd been advised not to do, check out the competition. There were dozens of couples on the waiting parents page and I clicked on them all. When a couple got a baby, their picture disappeared which allowed me to torture myself with theories about why they'd been picked and not us. Their houses were bigger. Their vacation photos looked more fun. They had biological children, ready-made siblings. The couples at the top of the waiting parents page had been there the longest. So every time someone got a baby, our photo crept closer to the top, like we were out of season boots lingering on the clearance table. In reality, we knew there was no way to predict what birth parents were looking for, but it didn't help, we suspected that we lived in a small high-rise apartment in a big city with no yard, and that we were different religions, and that neither of us were planning to be a stay-at-home parent. So what does the agency say, our families would ask? They say our baby will find us. And then at 10.30, one quiet Saturday night, our phone rang. One of the things we'd learned at our support group meetings is that sometimes, instead of calling the agency while she's pregnant, a woman waits until she's given birth. In adoption speak, that's called an instababy. And this was an instababy call. Here's what I remember. 
The baby was a girl. She had trouble breathing at first, but now she was fine. She scored four on her first APGAR test, nine on her second. The caseworker said the birth mother had read my profile on the website. And though she wanted my husband and I to adopt her baby, she didn't want to meet us. The hospital was a four-hour drive away, and by the time we arrived to pick up the baby the next morning, she'd be gone. She didn't want to talk. She didn't want us to know who she was. She wanted to disappear forever. I'll admit, I was thrown by this. For years, I'd been telling people about open adoption, how it was best for the kids and best for the birth moms, and that one of the most important things I could do as an adoptive parent was help my child know where and who he'd come from. The birth mother didn't want to be known, totally fair, but I wasn't prepared for it. Tell her I'm grateful she chose us, I told the caseworker, but please, can you ask her before she leaves the hospital, can she tell us anything? Health history, family history, anything at all about her that I can share with the baby? The caseworker agreed. We hung up and waited. 45 minutes passed, then the phone rang. I'm sorry, the caseworker said. She won't say anything, I asked. That's okay, we'll see you in the morning. Actually, said the caseworker, your question upset her. She said she wanted parents who jumped to adopt her baby. No questions asked. She's choosing another family, sorry. I was numb. But wait, I said, I was just trying to be a good parent. I know, said the caseworker, but we have to respect what she wants. The next day when I checked the website, another couple's picture was gone. Their photo had been right next to ours. In the weeks that followed, I thought more and more about that phrase, your baby will find you. I wanted to believe it. But all I could think was that my baby had gotten lost and that he was out there somewhere, hungry and cold, unable to read a map or, you know, talk and walk. And so my husband and I did the only thing you really can do as parents. We followed our instincts. We told the agency we were taking a break. Our baby was out there and it was our job to find him. And you know what? A few years later, we did. It's not a story I can tell yet, because a good parent respects her kid's privacy. So for now, I'll just say this. I have a five-year-old son, and he was worth the wait. Where Do You Exist is produced by Little Everywhere in collaboration with HBO's Here and Now. Produced by Alan Ball, Peter McDesey, and David Noller. I'm your host, Chris Garcia. Come back next week for more. <laughs>